I'm super excited to have Mike Carlisle with us, everybody. Mike Carlisle. And so if you don't know Mike, um, Mike is Director of Missions for the San Diego Southern Baptist Association. And as a church, we are part of North American Mission Board, and which is all connected. Um, and Mike is Director of Missions. He has been involved in advancing Jesus' mission in this city um, for years now. And my wife and I, Eleanor and I, know him and his lovely wife, Judy, personally. And they have been a huge blessing, huge source of wisdom and support for our church. Um, he is also on the board of our advisory team as a church that provides us with wisdom and oversight as well. And so he loves to golf. Um, <laughs> um, he loves to read and he likes technology. I went on your biography and read all of those things, and so I'm sharing it with you guys. Um, and he is an amazing man. He's going to come up um, and help us understand not just what mission is, but what God has been doing specifically in San Diego. And so, King's Cross Church, let's put our hands together for Mike Carlisle. <laughs> So, um, good morning, church. Hey, it's great to be with you, and uh, I'm glad to know I like golf. It doesn't like me very well, but I, I do like to play it. Um, my son was a golf pro for years up in Orange County, and I always watched, loved to watch him play because I could never do that. Um, so I learned a lot from him. But it's a joy to greet you in the name of Jesus and tell you you're part of a wonderful network. We have about 200 churches now in San Diego County from uh, San Ysidro all the way up to Oceanside, where we live, in North County. And so the gospel is being preached by your sister churches, and you're being prayed for by your sister churches. They pray for our new church plants and so forth. And uh, there's a tremendous power in that because the gospel going out in Arabic and Filipino and Korean and other Asian languages and Ethiopian and so forth. So it's an amazing time for us to be a part of mission in San Diego because San Diego is mission. And I'll explain all that pretty much in a minute. Uh, thank you for introducing me, and, and this is my wife, Judy, over here. Judy is on our staff, too. She is a director of our ministry operations, discipleship, and mission. And so we're really f getting fired up right now, and this has not been on the press at all, so you wouldn't know this, but we're the only group that's been ministering to the migrant uh, human needs down at the border. We have a full-time missionary in Tijuana. His name's Juvenal Gonzalez, and we're coordinating now. The, the, in the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear a lot more about this on the news but we're coordinating a lot of churches that want to come and just take, forget the political stuff, just take care of some of the human needs that are there, which we've been doing now, feeding them and caring for them and trying to love them, share Christ with them, plant churches with them. When the, when the Haitian big bubble came here a couple years ago, uh, we had all kinds of Haitians we were ministering to there. And now there's Haitian churches in Tijuana. They speak both French and Spanish now. There's 200, 200 Haitians going to church in Tijuana because we planted a Haitian church there. So we're all about mission. That's kind of what, and thank you for the privilege of speaking to this today. When I grew up back in a little town in Ohio years ago, it's called Blue Ash, Ohio, just north of Cincinnati, north uh, east, about 15 miles. And the community I grew up in was pretty much all alike. Uh, it was a blue-collar community. My dad was a heavy equipment operator. I thought men all smelled like diesel fuel. Seriously, I mean, I, I thought that's what men did. They smelled like diesel fuel. My dad drove a bulldozer every day of his life. 
When we went to church, we went to a little Baptist church there, we sang the same songs, Amazing Grace, the old rugged cross. I love to tell the story. We had vacation Bible school. Kids were saying, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it, you know, the song. oh, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's a book for me. We stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. So we, we did that. that. That was just kind of what we did. And that was pretty much uh, what everybody did. We, we pretty much dressed alike. We put on a suit to go to church if we had one. Uh, I only had a sport coat growing up. Uh, we had the same order of service. We sang the doxology. We had a welcome hymns, offering message, and so forth, give an invitation for people to come and, and discover Christ in their life. And then we go to lunch someplace like before Colonel Sanders was popular, he had his Kentucky Fried Chicken in other restaurants. So we go have Kentucky Fried Chicken. Have you noticed the world is not like that anymore? Amen? Yeah, go ahead and say that. Amen? Yeah, that just means I agree. That's all amen means. I agree. Uh, so I've noticed our world has changed, and it is completely different in terms of language, culture. We're not culturally homogeneous anymore. We're pretty heterogeneous. We're not so much like a, a, um, a mixing, but we're like a stew pot, kind of. We have all, all these different cultures and languages and colors and, and smells and so forth for food, and... Um, we dress differently, our music and our sources of entertainment, diversity. Say that word, diversity. And I love it. I mean, I didn't grow up that way, but I absolutely love it. So it's no accident that you're here. And you're here in a city that is a port city, and it is a border city. You're here in a, in a community that one out of five people have some connection with military, the largest military city probably in America. And so that means there's a lot of churn and turnover and people coming and people going. And I tell our pastors, you know, it's about 13% of your congregation is going to be changed every, every year. So in three years, that means about a third of your congregation is going to be different. So the model that I'm looking at for churches is, is no more like a sheepfold where everybody comes in, like when I grew up, and you knew everybody, they're going to be there in the same community every Sunday. Now it's like a train station. The train pulls up to King's Cross. People get out, and they, they hang out here for about three years. But what happens to them in those three years could be remarkable for mission. The train's coming back. It's going to pick those, some of those people up again. It's going to take them hither, tither, and yon. And now they're going to be different than when they came here. They're going to leave this place as ministers of the gospel of Christ, taking Jesus with them wherever they may go. And so Pastor Obed asked me to bring a message on church and mission as part of this summer series. So are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Let's start with what God is doing in San Diego. See, why is this important? Because here, I was in business for years before I went into full-time ministry. I was vice president for the Times Mirror Company that ran cable television companies. So I had companies in California and New York and Florida, and so I, would, I loved doing that before I, I, I went into ministry. But every time I went into a city... The first thing we did is we, we exegeted the city. Now, that's a sort of a Bible term, exegete the Bible. Exegete means we simply, we simply dis discovered how that city was made, what made it up, what, what the people were there, what they liked, where they shopped. We knew pretty much everything about a city because we had investors, and they wanted to know, what is your business plan to reach people in, in our market to sell our products to and so forth? What disturbs me is a lot of times our... Our faith community just thinks like, well, God is sovereign and he'll bring people as he chooses and so forth. No, 
God says, study to show yourself approved. That means we need to understand where God's placed us. Amen? Yeah, you got it. Good. We need to study where God's placed us. So I'm going to give you a little overview of our city. So let's take a look at a couple of the slides that are here. San Diego. Slide, next slide. Thank you. Beautiful city. Eh? Oh, this is great. I love Mayor Pete Wilson. Years ago, one of our former mayors said, uh, it's America's most beautiful city. Finest city, actually, he said. All right, the next slide. Let's give me some facts about where we live, where you and I live. San Diego is the seventh largest city, seventh or eighth, depending on what study you look at, in America. We're the second largest city in California. And so we have 4,200 square miles of space in San Diego County. We have 18 incorporated cities, plus a lot of people are unincorporated. The largest military population of any city. We have 3.2 million people on this side of the border and about 3 million people on the other side of the border separated by an imaginary line. But if you look at from the, from the top down, you're looking at about 6 million people of humanity all gathered in kind of the same space. But there's a lot of different languages spoken in that same space. And so um, just a few years, about five years ago, no, it's been about seven years ago now, we were asked by the San Diego Foundation, um, a friend of mine and I, to study San Diego and help San Diego create a vision for its future. That was when the election was going on and they were trying to put together a plan where the people would decide what they wanted rather than politicians going behind closed doors to decide what they wanted. And so we helped them do that. And we found out there was four significant things that by the year 2040, there's gonna be another uh, 1.4 million people in the next 40 years, 1.4 million people come into this county. 1.4 million souls. So... Um, and that we have the power of the waterfront. The man who first bought San Diego and developed it said that the reason he did is because he said you could always count on the power of the waterfront. That's why these homes along the waterfront sell for millions and millions of dollars. And they'll always sell, no matter what the economy is, people want to live here, right? I mean, I'm glad to be here. I just, just enjoy, to enjoy the weather. So there's gonna be 400,000 new homes built. There's gonna be a need for 500,000 new jobs. There is three major concerns that the people we surveyed, and there was like 200, uh, 114,000 responses to our survey. So it was a significant statistically survey. And they said, here's what we want. We need to have great education for our kids. Why? Because this place is so expensive to live, they need to get good jobs. To get good jobs, they gotta have a good education. So we're concerned about that and enjoy the lifestyle here and afford to buy a home. And so that, those are the four big things that came up out of the survey. So let me show you something about the spiritual side. Now, let's take a look at the next slide. Um, there was a study by Barna on America's most Bible-minded cities. It was a 10-year study of the top 100 cities in America. And Barna Research found that San Diego, out of 100, one being the most Bible-minded, 100 being the least Bible-minded, we, we ranked 71 which is not a great number to be proud of. So based on individuals who report reading the Bible in a typical week, who strongly assert the Bible's accurate and so forth, they, uh, they gather this information. Here's another thing, next slide. America is, I mean, San Diego is a post, what we call a post-Christian city. Post-Christian city. 23,000 people were surveyed, and in that survey, if 60% of the people responded to 15 factors they were considered a post-Christian person. Factors like, I don't believe in God. 
uh, identify as an atheist or an agnostic. I disagree that faith is important in my life. I have not prayed to God in the last year and so forth. And so out of all that information, San Diego ranked number 10. Now, um, that's not something to be really proud of because um, we're not a, a very Bible-minded place. Now, this is not a new thing. So before we get all alarmed and say, man, we're headed to hell in a handbasket here, don't get all excited. This is nothing compared to how it started. Back in pre-Christian days, it was worse. I mean, they crucified Christians for their belief back in, in those days. It was worse. So let me show you some of the facts about religion here in San Diego. San Diego, we will consider from the Bible verse, Acts 1-8, when Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. And he said, after the Holy Spirit's come upon you, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. In other words, looking from his point of view in Jerusalem, from here all the way around the world, you will be witnesses. And um, so San Diego, here's what our Jerusalem looks like. Uh, Catholic leads uh, the followers because of our Hispanic influence in Spain and our history and so forth with about uh, 115 congregations. And you can see down the list that the one that's important is the last one. Even if all these people from these various other groups were full-on committed to their faith, there's 1.7 million, say the word with me, none. None. <laughs> 1.7 million None. And that's the person who, when they fill out their application uh, for anything, and it says, you know, what's your religious preference, they check. None. Exactly right. So, 1.7 million people on this side of the border. Here's another thing to look at, another slide. What do Americans believe? 89% of Americans believe in God. 74% believe in life after death. 63% say their respective... Um, Scriptures are the word of God and so forth. Now, with all that, we did a little, uh, in 2006 to 2009, I'm going to run through this real quick because it's not all that relevant to it. We did a thing called Strategic Focus City. And they, I was sent here back to California in 2006 to lead this. And we mobilized 9,000 volunteers. We increased baptism in our churches by a significant amount. We planted 54 new churches in three years. And most of those are still going. We went from 100 and about 60 churches to well over 200 churches. So San Diego is now the 36th most churchless city in America. Now, the good news is that's beginning to change a little bit, hopefully because of the work that's been going on, not because of what we've done, but because of what God's doing. So here's another slide. So the problem is you have to decide if we're going to make an impact in a region that's basically post-Christian, not all that impressed with spiritual things, what do you do to get their attention? And so, um, take a look at this slide. How do, we, how do we connect the region? So move us ahead one more here. Click, there you go. So, there are people that are elected to lead cities. That was Mayor Sanders. So we went to Mayor Sanders back in 06, and we said to him, uh, what, what would it take to reach San Diego? We had him speak to some of our ministers and, and leaders uh, and so forth. And so um, we wanted to position the church as a partner for good. I've never met a politician yet that said, well, we need more alcoholics. We need more drug abusers. We need more prostitutes. On our no, none of them are going to say that. 
They're saying we need, we need clean water, fresh air, good schools, good education. All those things the church can come alongside and say, we want that too. And so we want to position ourselves not as the church is over here, good guys, and all you sinners over here, bad guys. God sent us into the world, not to be of it, but to be in it. We're to be salt and light and influence, right? And so that being the case, let me just show you a quick video clip. And I'm running through this because I want to get to the, the good stuff here in just a minute. Where we are in terms of where we're headed in terms of mission. And so our first attempt in trying to reach the cities, we said, okay, if we're going to reach the city, we have to serve them. So we had to find out where are the points of pain. And we found out there were five points based on what we talked to the mayor and other city leaders about. And we organized our churches and said, let's do something and have a, a day of service. We'll call it faith in action. Judy, my wife, actually led that effort and trained some of our leaders. And, uh, and so let's use this as an on-ramp to serve people just because it's the right thing to do. In other words, listen to me. Evangelism was not our ulterior motive. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to what? Serve. serve. Jesus calls us to serve, love God and love people. That's, that's the two big deals. Love God and love people. And so we said, okay, we get it. So we're going to serve people. Now, it is our ultimate goal to bring people to Christ. It's not a bait and switch deal. In other words, we're serving people just like Jesus did, whether they come to faith or not, we're going to serve them. Because we found out that good works creates goodwill. And goodwill opens the door to share the good news. I'll share more about that in a minute. Here, watch this little bit, about a three-minute video clip. Take a look. On this Sunday morning, many of San Diego's Southern Baptists didn't just go to church. They were the church. Never different, for sure. We've never, you know, we've been... The church is 20, almost 27 years old. We've never done anything like it before, but I think our people were ready to do it. I like the shirt, uh, don't go to church, be, be the church, and that is truly what it is. God woke me up this morning and said, Perlinda, get out there and get to work. We're just encouraged to do this together. I think we come to church every Sunday and we're kind of itching to, let's just do something different. Let's get out there and really live out our faith and do it together. Twenty-six churches participated in Faith in Action, sending more than 2,000 volunteers to 90 ministry sites. Christians spread out across the San Diego area putting their faith to work. I was real excited last night about, um, about coming here and doing this with my family and friends and, and just being a part of, of helping out in the community. We've been cleaning up this garden and we didn't go to church because we've been um, helping out our school. We underestimated them. And um, you might notice we probably have more painters than work, <laughs> to be honest. And um, they, they just jumped at it. Painting a ministry center on Camp Pendleton, cleaning up apartments, block parties, sprucing up schools, and the community noticed. All the energy and sweat today uh, made it happen, and we're very grateful, and you made a difference for us. I hope people wonder why we're doing it. I hope people say, what's behind all this, and, and why are they doing this, and, and come out and uh, find out what church really is all about, about Jesus Christ. Two questions emerged. The first question is, who are you? 
And then the next question is, well, why are you doing this? And it was glorious to see them say, well, we think Jesus cares about things like this, and we follow Jesus. So we're doing things that we think he'd be doing. For the churches and Christians who were apart, this is not a one-time event, but a habit they want to repeat over and over again. James tells us, you know, we're deceived if we're not doers of the word as well as hearers. And this is one way to, you know, shut the building down and people are forced to be doers of the word. You know, so it's, it's great. The long term is, um, you know, they're going to know that we're there already. And so um, uh, many of them are going to probably visit us in the next couple of weeks. Church worship is not only being in a church. I think for us, it was the enthusiasm in the church, but also the impact in the community that people are coming to say, wow, that they really do what they say, um, that they really are, are believers, they really love people, they love the community. On this Sunday, they didn't just go to church, but the church was being the church all over San Diego. So the whole point of that is we want not only to be the church, but to build relationships. And in fact, there's two sides of the church. One is come and see, and the other is go and tell. And we do a pretty good job of the coming and seeing, but we need to do even a better job of the going and telling. So that actually, um, oh, by the way, uh, I had glasses on there, and I just got to confess something real quickly. I had eye surgery last week, and this is the first time I'm preaching without my glasses. And, right, and things are a little bit fuzzy, so if I mess up, you know, you'll understand. But I'm, I'm pretty well seeing it, but I'll, I'll work on it harder. So, um, so what's the basis for serving? Check this out. Good works, read that with me. Can you see it? Good works creates goodwill, and goodwill opens the door to share the good news. Now, I love this verse in Peter. We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do, oh, excuse me, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. Now, have you ever had anybody come up and saying, you know, I want to ask you a question. How can I become a Christian? It doesn't happen very often, but you know how it happens? When you do something for someone totally unexpected, totally sort of out of the blue, where you serve them in a way that's very meaningful to them, and they're going to say, why are you doing this? Who are you? And, and it opens a door... All of my life, I've been training people to be an evangelist who does the asking. Have you heard of the four spiritual laws? Can I ask you a question? For example, I'm being an evangelist. Do you know if you were to die, you'd go to heaven? If you were to die and go to heaven and stand before God and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? That kind of thing. So we train people to do that. That's not what this is saying. You get it? Always be prepared. That's important being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect, respectfully. So what we found out is when we serve people with good works projects and so forth, people were pretty shocked. And they would say, now tell us who you are. And we trained our people to say, don't say you're from the church and blah, blah, blah. Just tell them you're a follower of Christ. And probably a few years ago, you wouldn't have done this. You wouldn't have cared about this. But if Jesus were here, he would care about this. And so therefore, that's why I'm doing it now. And here's the magic moment. You say to them, can I ask you a question? Has anything like that ever happened to you? Can I share with you my story? How it happened to me? You see what I'm saying? It's a bridge 
good works, good deeds is a bridge over which the gospel walks the easiest to tell people about Christ. Look at this verse in Ephesians. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Say these words with me. To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here's God's to-do list. He wants us to serve people. He wants us to love our neighbors. He wants us to get out of ourselves. Now, I am a student of cities. Uh, I, did, I did my doctoral work on transformational leadership for the global city. So Judy and I have traveled. Uh, we've gone across the country to Africa, Europe. We've gone to um, Israel, Jordan, all over North America. And we've studied how cities work. Every city is alike. They have three parts. They have a public sector. That's government. They have a private sector, it's business, arts, entertainment, and they have a social sector, that's churches and nonprofits, et cetera. All cities are alike in that regard. The challenge is getting them to work together for the greater good. That's our sweet spot, folks. There's no Catholic way to serve or Baptist way to serve or atheist way to serve. There's just service. And when you serve people, it opens doors. So that's, I want to make that point. So in, in studying cities... We noticed something happened. Back in the early days of Christianity, I'm going to be a teacher here for a moment. Um, Christians sort of moved into monastic communities. They sort of cloistered themselves into their own little worlds. And Jesus said, don't live your life so it's like letting your light be put under a bushel basket. But they did. And so the monastic movement went from the Holy Land all the way around through Europe over to the area of the pagan Celts. Uh, and so we studied in, in some of the islands off, off of um, Scotland and, and England and Ireland. And we, we, we went back to the history and study of this. And we found when the monastic fathers went over to, Scotland, to uh, Ireland, particularly in Scotland, they realized people, people didn't care what they believed because they weren't involved in the community. So they invited the community to come to them. So the Roman church taught you must believe and behave and then you can belong. And that's where we have been pretty much in our American culture. But what they found in the pre-Christian culture, you invite the community in so that they could live with you, see how your life is. See, it's real. It's authentic. So you could belong, and then you kind of learn your behavior in order to believe. Or you believed, and then your behavior changed. And so they found that that's the way Europe was evangelized. And now if you're pre-Christian times to post-Christian times, what's happened is the same strategy is back again. And how do we do that? We serve people. That's our mission. We serve people. And so what did Jesus do? Now here's the best part, and I'm going to go pretty quick here. So gear up, buckle up. We're going to go through this. What did Jesus do? The next slide. There's three verses in the Bible. Um, in fact, you have some notes here. It's in your notes, not up here on the screen. Matthew 9, 35, look at it, and I'm going to read it out loud, and I want you to read the last verse with me, verse 38. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction when he saw the crowds. Watch this. He had compassion for them. His heart was broken for them because they were harassed they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, can you read this with me? The harvest is plenteous, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors 
into his harvest. Now, here is the secret. If you don't hear me say anything else today, get this. Here's the secret. The secret is we must get on our knees and talk to God before we start talking to people. So God puts the gospel so clearly in our heart that we're ready to do that. How did Jesus do it? Let's walk through it. Number one, uh, uh, let's back up. Go, go to number one. I'm sorry. I think There we go. There, right there. He engaged the cities and villages. So if you're taking notes, you write the word in engaged. He engaged the cities and villages. The Bible says Jesus went throughout all the cities. Why cities? It's because, like today, that's where people go to get a job. Why you say, why did you study cities? I found out in America, 85% of the population in America lives in the top 32 cities. Jesus understood that. He went, that's why Paul went to all the major cities to start new churches. People come to the cities for jobs, for protection. There's, there's walls around cities back in the day. That was their defensive system. And so uh, cities were the places where people went and, and clustered. So he worked... He engaged the cities. He worked inside the church. Notice it says he taught in their synagogues. That is, he started with the people of faith. He started with people who already appreciated the Bible, loved God, knew God in some capacity, telling them the truth, and then he wanted to get them ready so they could then engage the community like he did, like he was doing, right? You with me? All right, shake your head if you're with me. I just want to be sure. Okay, good. So he worked inside the church, and then he worked outside the church. He moved to the nuns, if you would. <laughs> Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. So here are the nuns showing up again back in, in that day. It didn't mean they were atheist or even agnostic. It just meant that they didn't know what they didn't know. And in our case, a lot of our cultural kids growing up are simply students of what they're learning from liberal media in Hollywood. And in our educational system, unfortunately, that's permeated our educational system, so there's not a lot of biblical foundation that kids have to lean on. So he worked inside the church, he took it outside the church, he moved to the nuns, and then notice he healed hurts. That's, he served people. He served them. Healing every disease and every affliction. How many times a day are we confronted with hurting people? I mean, people we work with, people that are our neighbors, people that we here are in church with. So what did Jesus do? Number two, he felt, next slide, he felt compassion. He felt compassion for people. Seeing the, multi, seeing the people, notice he saw them. Now that, that's a skill to be learned, and, and I'm not fully there yet. Um, have you ever talked to someone, introduced yourself to them, you say, hey, how are you doing? And, you start, and they're looking everywhere, but they're not seeing you, and you want to stop talking and say, Hey, are we talking or are you looking? You know, it's just, it's hard to do in our culture. Seeing the people, he noticed them. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed. Look at these three things. They were distressed, dispirited, like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, he didn't look through them. He didn't look over them. He didn't look around them. He was focused on who he was talking to. Did you know that um, just stopping and talking to people is almost a major skill that's been lost. Yeah. We're all so busy in ourselves. Um, a pair of listening ears will drink dry a thousand tongues. 
There's so few people that listen. And so he had compassion. This Greek word translate, and I don't say this a lot. I mean, when you go to seminary, you study all this stuff in Hebrew and Greek. And it makes you sound all, all educated and stuff. But this word is this one that I love. It's called splognizomai. I mean, how about that for a word? Splognizomai, compassion. Splognizomai, which is used frequently in the Gospels. In fact, the root meaning is to be stirred up with feeling, to have emotion. It's, to, it's in this... The sight of people moved him to pity in the New English Bible. The New American Bible in the today's English version says, his heart was moved with pity. Other translations says, he was filled with compassion for them or pity for them filled him. Uh, Judy often has a little, little ditty. She says, you know, pity stops and stares, but compassion stoops and shares. They were distressed. That's a word for harassed. It's a verb, means they were troubled. But Israel's religious leaders were harassing and abandoning their sheep. They weren't paying attention to them. I often think about how many kings and leaders in the world ask people to die for them. Let's go conquer this. Let's go do this. Let's go to war. Would you die for your country? How many leaders have ever died for their people? His name is Jesus. So they were dispirited. They were helpless. The verb here means they were thrown down. They were disheartened. It's like watching, watching the Chargers in the Super Bowl game. I mean, give me a break. It just, uh, I was a Chargers fan. I didn't leave them. They left me. I'm just saying, okay? Or it's like the women's soccer, the Thai women's soccer team. 13 to zero. I mean, how discouraging were those ladies in the FIFA deal with the women's uh, championship? Well, USA just beat them. They were without direction, the Bible says, like sheep without a shepherd. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt sort of just distressed and dispirited and lacked direction with your life? Do you know that most of the world feels that way? That's why mission is so important. God didn't create you just to have a career. God has created you for a mission on this planet. And someday all of us are going to stand before him and he's going to say, how'd it go? Time will, not, will be irrelevant, so we're not in a hurry. God may hit the tape recorder and play your whole life back in front of you and him watching. How did you use your time? How did you use your money? How did you use your influence for something that outlived you? When I taught evangelism questions called Evangelism Explosion years ago, we'd often ask people two questions about their faith. But I'm starting to ask different questions now. I'm starting to ask questions. Have you found God's purpose for your life? Or have you found purpose in your life? Not God's purpose. Have you found purpose in your life? Ask people that question. You know, you're having coffee with someone and you're having a good conversation. You say, Can I ask you a, a question? I'm, this is kind of philosophical, but have you got a purpose for your life? Do you really down deep feel like you know your purpose for living? And man, that opens a door that's huge, huge. And then ask the question, How's that working for you? Look at the next slide. What did Jesus do? This is the big deal. Number three, he felt compassion for people. Number two, the next slide is, he calls us to the what? That's what the Bible says. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. In other words, where is God at work around us? Where are the hurts? Where are the people that are distressed and so forth? The harvest is plentiful. There's plenty of harvest but their workers are few. 
So imagine, now my wife had the joy of growing up on a dairy farm. Her dad had to raise corn to feed the cows that he milked to sell for their living, so forth. And I can remember at the fall of the year how important it was when the corn and the crops were ripe, he could not do it by himself. He would call out to his neighbors and they would show up and they would help him harvest you know, 80 acres of corn, put it in the corn crib, take it to make feed out of it to feed the cows all year. And so he would do the same thing for other farmers. So they all kind of worked together. He said, if your crop is ready, you've got to have laborers and the crop is ready. You can't wait. It's urgent. He identified a reality. In other words, uh, there's a thing in business called the, I think it's Pareto's Law, where 80% of the people do 20% of the work. Are you all familiar with that? It's, it's typically used in business a lot. And it's really used a lot in church, where most 20% of the people do most of the work in the church. But we're talking about inside the church. Listen, there's not enough jobs in the church for everybody. There isn't. If all of you here this morning said to Obed after the service, I want a job, show me what I can do. He wouldn't have a job for you. But listen, if you see yourself as a minister where God's placed you in your career and you see the influence you have with people there because living your life as a believer in Christ, it's not inside the church that matters. It's the mission impact outside the church. We just gather here to get inspiration and learning and so forth. So 100% of the people following God all can have a mission and a and ministry. And so how do we respond? Verse 38 says, therefore beseech the Lord. That simply means call upon God. means pray. Pray. How do we, what do we do? We work. Four-letter word. W-O-R-K. So everyone's called to the harvest as laborers and ministers to share the good news. So where is your harvest field? That, and that's a question you ought to be asking. God, where is my harvest field? Where do you spend your most time? Matthew 5, 16. Read this with me. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deed and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus understood this. Now, we sometimes act super humble. Well, I don't want people to know what I've done. I'll do it in secret. And there's a place for that at times. But he wants us to be able to demonstrate and display the good things of God so God gets glory for it. So don't answer out loud. I'm going to give you a test and I'm going to wrap it up here. Who is the customer of the church? There's a lot of opinions about this and in traditional churches, many people feel like the church is kind of like the clubhouse. It's sort of like I belong here. I'm a member. I paid my tithes here and so forth. So the church is here for me. But if you answer that way, you would be totally wrong. Jesus had a customer. In fact, he told all kinds of stories. He talked about a lost son, the prodigal son, a lost sheep, who a shepherd left the 99 to go get the one that was lost. He talked about a lady who lost a coin and turned her house upside down to find the coin. Then he said, I come to seek and to save what? The lost. Jesus had a customer. It's the people who are not here this morning, and most likely. And maybe some of us here are still searching for a concrete faith. But Jesus had a customer. Now, we are the body of Christ, right? We're the body of Christ. Say, I'm the body of Christ. I am the body of Christ. You're absolutely right. That's a biblical true statement. So if we're the body of Christ, we have the same customer as Christ. So we have customer, lost son, lost sheep, lost coin. We are the ones that take his message, the good news of God, out to a dying world and so forth. So... 
The custom of the church is people who are not yet in it. And I'm talking about reaching the nuns, the duns, and the almost duns. You say, what are you talking about? If you're done with the way you've seen church done in the past, don't leave it, change it. Let me show you what I mean. What are the duns, people who are leaving church right now, some of our young people are, and the reason they are is they're done with, not with church, they're done with what they often see. They see institutionalism, judgmentalism, they see infighting, a passive audience, lack of applicability to life, hypocrisy, abuse of power, anti-intellectualism, or they see a lack of compassion ministries. And if they say, uh, if they see that, they drop out, I can understand that. But do you notice anything missing in that list? I do. None of the things people usually leave the church over are things that actually define the church. Say, what do you mean? The good news is you're not alone. That is, in addition to me, as if you cared about that, in addition to me, there have been a lot of people in history who have rejected that way of Martin Luther was one of them. He changed the institutional church and the Reformation. The pilgrims came to this country because they didn't like the way the church was so institutionalized in, in Europe. John Wesley did that. Martin Luther King did that. He didn't like the way the, the ethnic stuff was being handled in terms of uh, uh, racial relations and so forth. And long before them, Jesus himself was done with the way worship was being conducted in his day. But they didn't leave. They didn't give up. They stood up and changed things. They didn't add anything to the gospel. They didn't change the message. They reinforced the basics. In fact, they pointed to the timeless truth of the great commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So you don't like the way the church is done? Then let me just say, do it better. That's why I love this church. King's Cross is a bright light offering to a culture that, that is different than it was even a few years ago. And why we need churches like King's Cross now more than ever is because we are culturally so, so uh, divergent and, and um, that's what I'm looking for, so diverse, diversity. And that's not what the traditional church really respected. So what do you think? What do you plan to do? The gospel's still the answer. And the reason I know is because two, two months ago, my mother of 99 years old passed away up in up in Oceanside, and she was a good woman, loved God her whole life, but she got to the point her body was just falling apart, and she kept saying, honey, why, do, why is God leaving me here? I have served him, I love him, but I just can't, I can't really bear the pain anymore, and so on a Sunday afternoon, we got a phone call from the assisted living home where she lived, and, she, and the nurse said, Mike, could you and Judy come over? Uh, your mom's not being responsive. We got over there, and she's laying in her bed, and, and I went over to her, and, and I grabbed her hand. I said, Mom, um, I don't know if you can hear me, but I just want to tell you it's okay. God's answering your prayer, and now is your time. And I was weeping, and Judy was crying. My son had flown in for that moment. As we was talking to her, I said, I want, in my mind, I said, I wonder if she really hears me. She taught our, little, our grandkids a little nonsensical ditty, a poem. She said, it was going, Applejack, John Sweeney, Yoch, Pocha, Domino, John Swan, Jack. So it's a stupid little thing that she, she taught them. And I, I leaned down and I said, eeny, meeny. And she mouthed, tipsy, teeny. I said, Applejack. She said, John Sweeney. I said, I know she's hearing me. And so even though she couldn't respond to me with her eyes open or, or verbal, she could sort of mouth it. And I, I just thought at that moment, 
Here is a person whose life has been lived beautifully, and now she's going to enter her joy. And I want for you, I want for me, I want for us when we come to that point where God closes the curtain on our time here, and we're ready to enter into that space that none of us have been to, but there was one person that told us about it. The only person ever was in heaven in eternity and came to earth, was born as a human like us, lived a life, was preached the gospel, was crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended back to the Father. He left this word, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. He called them mansions. I go now to prepare a place for you that where I am, you can go, you will be also. Folks, we sometimes act like this, everything in eternity is all about this life, and it's not. Jesus came and told us what it's really like. But he used language so powerful that we can't grab it. He talked about heaven. He talked about the gates being like pearls and precious stones. And the most precious thing we have, like gold, we walk on it in heaven. It's the streets are paved with gold. Now, that's metaphorical language just to stretch our thinking to the breaking point, saying, it's so glorious and so good, how can I understand life where there's no more tears, no more pain, no need for keys to lock and unlock doors. There's no evil there. That's where we're headed. And I want to take somebody with me. And I want you to go there with me. And I want your friends to go there with me. I want your children to go there. I want your parents to go there. It's time to pray. Would you bow with me? Every head bowed just for a moment. Lord Jesus, these few moments we shared together from your word about the harvest is plenteous. God, would you give us eyes to see people like you did? Would you allow us to know and, and sort of feel with some compassion what people are going through and living through and just saying to them, we care, can we, can we pray for you? Would you give us a heart for people so powerful, God, that, that much of our time will be in prayer about people whose troubles and issues of life they're letting us in on? and trusting us with to talk to you about. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, my challenge to you is if you're here today and you want that kind of cause in your life, listen, I get it. This culture is not about brand. It's not about going to church. This culture is about cause. The greatest cause is Jesus has called you with a life mission. And today, if you wanna receive that mission, Maybe you've never really fully devoted your life to Christ. I'm not asking you to become a pastor or a preacher or anything like that. I'm just asking you to give your life wholly to him. Let him use you in your work and your influence and the people around you to grow you and mature you. Would you invite Christ into your life with heads bowed and eyes closed? No one looking but me right now. Let me just see. So someone in here would say with courage, Pastor Mike, that's me. I want to I have that kind of cause in my life. I want to give Christ full reign in my life right now. Lift your hand up real high and let me see it. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for your courage. Thank you. Someone else. Yes. God bless you. Yes. Thank you. Put your hand down. Someone else. Several have responded. I want to pray for you right now. Just lift your hand up real high. Say, this is what I want. Fully devoted to Christ in my life. I want to be purposefully living my life, not aimlessly living. Anyone else? Okay, well, Father, you know those who lifted their, their hearts to you and they want to do the same thing, so I pray for these that have lifted their hand and God, you grant to them what they've asked. You said, as many as receive me, I'll give them the right to become sons and daughters of God. So based on that, I simply thank you that here's, 
Here's some brand new folks who wanted to step in and be fully devoted to you. Bless them, oh God. Lead their life. Let them share this with others. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, 